Sunday morning studying the book of Romans and uh, coming uh, quickly toward the end of the book now. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, just flag one of the guys coming up the aisles right now with Bibles and they'll get a Bible into your hand this morning and mark to our passage. If you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. He wants everyone to own a Bible and to know the Bible. Romans chapter 14, picking things up in verse 14. Paul writes by the Holy Spirit, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. For to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Uh, Yet, if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. And therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by man. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which we may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat, nor to drink wine, nor to do anything by which your brother stumbles, or is offended or made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are speaking God. And you speak supremely and uh, through your word. And we thank you, Lord, how willing you are to add the voice of your Holy Spirit to your truth, to speak into our own individual lives and our own individual relationship with you. And Lord, as long as you are speaking, we always want to be found hearing. Anything that is important to you, enough to communicate to us, we are eager to receive and to make a part of our understanding of you and of our relationship with you and of our place and influence in this world and in your church. And we pray that you would bless these verses and you would make them uh, clear to us, Lord in all of these ways and in all of these places that you have called us to individually as Christians. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Paul is now very nearly about to begin a very long, loving close to this book of Romans. But before he does, here in chapters 14, verse 1, on through chapter 15, verse 13, he addresses the issue of the exercise of Christian liberties in a church made up of Christians whose consciences concerning Christian liberties or doubtful things were both strrong and weak. And that is true of every single Christian. In the ancient uh, church in Rome that Paul is writing to, for the most part, it was a church that was made up of both Jews and Gentiles. 
And the Jews were, for the most part, the weaker brethren in terms of liberties. They had a more restricted view of liberties and the practice of liberties because of their uh, background in the Old Testament, their, uh, their life experience as well as Jews. The Gentiles were far more strong in the exercise of the liberties or the freedoms that we have as Christians. But when you're going to put those two kinds of groups of people together... And every church needs to be made up of both of those kinds of people. There's a strong pressure for the church to uh, divide or to even disintegrate under the weight of of those kind of of differences. As we saw last time in our study of uh, uh, chapter 14, uh, verses 1 through 13, Christian liberties refer to those things that God's Word uh, does not address definitively for us as Christians. We're not uh, called to practice or not practice them uniformly. There's room for Christians to have a difference of opinion on whether they will practice these things or not practice these things in their own lives. Christians have the freedom to uh, hold a variety of views on these issues. As we saw concerning the church in Rome last time, for them the thing they were struggling over was what day of the week was the best day to worship God. The Jews, have felt, of course, felt that the Sabbath day, the Saturday, which ought to be carried over right from the Old Testament and the Old Covenant into the New Covenant. Uh, the Gentiles looked as the early church seemed to meet uh, very early on, on Sundays. It was the day of Jesus' uh, resurrection from the dead. And uh, so they were divided on this issue. They were di- divided on the issue of uh, diet. And uh, the fact that we are, you know, the question of whether are we free to eat anything or are there foods that we're to avoid as Christians? And not for health reasons, but as a matter of if I avoid these things, will it give me a greater right standing before God? These are the things they were uh, addressing 2,000 years ago. Today, uh, even though there's small sections of the body of Christ who still fight over what day to worship and over diet, these things are largely in our rearview mirror as Christians in the year 2019 in a Western culture. But there are still issues and liberties that we have the potential to fight over and to divide over in in our age. As we noted last time uh, in in looking at the introduction of this section, there is the drinking of alcohol. Uh, There is the issue of music uh, that we listen to or the entertainment that we watch or the literature that we read. Uh, Christians have very very different opinions on whether to practice or not practice uh, Christmas or uh, whether a Christian is free to own something that is a luxury when there's so much uh, need within the world and and the money could be spent related to the spread of the gospel, whether there's the freedom to own a luxury home or a luxury automobile or even uh, engaging in birth control at all or homeschooling or uh, clothing or apparel and what is right in, 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 that, in that regard. Now, <clears throat> allow me to reemphasize that Paul, when he addresses uh, obedience, he's not addressing obedience to God's commandments here when he talks about liberties. 
God's commandments are to be obeyed by all Christians all the time. Those are never in play. But he's not talking about commandments here. He's talking about uh, liberties. He's addressing what he refers to in verse 1 of chapter 14 as doubtful things. We remember as well that Paul described the strong brother uh, in terms of liberty. The strong brother is the Christian who has a more developed sense of freedom in regard to uh, the exercise of Christian liberties. He describes the weaker brother as the Christian who possesses a a more restricted uh, or narrow sense of freedom concerning Christian liberties. Now, uh, Paul, knowing very well that disagreements over doubtful things, over Christian liberties, can really blow up the unity of a church, uh, he decided to give a gift to Rome in this letter, the church in Rome, and a gift to us even in our age in writing here and and providing us very, very invaluable instruction on how to view our Christian liberties and and how to uh, address the firmly held convictions of, of other Christians concerning Christian liberties in order that we can kind of all live harmoniously as Christians so that we don't have to divide into separate churches on the basis of, of these issues uh, alone. And last time, as we saw, Paul uh, began to introduce this, this subject by exhorting the strong in verse 1 of chapter 14, exhorting the strong to receive one who is weak, but not to uh, doubtful things. In verse 3, he said the strong and the weak are not to despise one another, they are not to judge one another, because God has saved and received them both. In verse 4, we're not to judge others in this regard concerning liberties, because they are not our servants, they are God's servants. And, uh, and they will stand before God one day, not before us, in terms of the life that they've lived. In verse 6, we're to realize uh, that two Christians can hold entirely different views on how a liberty ought to be uh, exercised, and then exercise that liberty in that way and be equally desirous and zealous to glorify God in the way that they do or do not exercise that liberty within their life. And then Paul closed the section that we looked at last time by exhorting us that our time would be better spent rather than judging one another as Christians over these Christian liberties and putting our focus upon our own lives, our own faithfulness to what it is that God has called each of us to uh, be and to do as, as Christians in preparation for the day that each of us will one day uh, give an account of ourselves to God at the judgment seat of Christ. And now in this passage, as we're studying here this morning, Paul goes on uh, to speak about the motivation uh, for uh, doing all of this. And he introduces the motivation of love. Now remember what he's doing here is he's calling for the most part, he considers himself to be a strong in terms of the liberty that he feels free to exercise as a Christian. He is in that camp. And he's calling the Christians who are strong in this regard, he is calling them for the most part to make sacrifices in order to accommodate 
the weaker. He asks very little of the weaker. He asks a great deal of the stronger in this regard. And he asks them to give up certain freedoms in certain environments around certain people in order to not stumble uh, a, a weaker brother in terms of their conscience concerning Christian liberty. And to ask a Christian, a strong Christian in terms of Christian liberty, to do that is to ask a great deal of them. It is to ask them to sacrifice what they know they have the freedom to do. They have the freedom to be in any environment that they're in. And yet Paul says, when you're around this brother, this sister, this group, then you put your freedom on the back burner so you don't stumble them. And freedom means a lot to a lot of people. Uh, but freedom is especially valuable to the Christian who is of this type, strong in terms of their Christian liberty. You think about how many people have uh, died in human history in a, a, a fight for their own personal liberty. Liberty and freedom means a lot to each and every one of us. And so Paul knows when he asks these stronger Christians to forsake the expression of their, the fullness of their liberty, that he's asking something uh, great of them, and that he must provide them with a motivation for doing so that is even greater than the sacrifice that they're going to exhibit and saying no to themselves on these liberties in order to not stumble a weaker brother. And that motivation, Paul declares, is the motivation of uh, love. And and, it, and as, as he describes it there in verse 15, he says, if, yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in <clears throat> love. And so the motivation for the strong to uh, put restrictions upon their liberties in certain environments and around certain people is to be done out of a motivation for God uh, to please him, to bless him, a motivation for uh, the unity and the strengthening of the body of Christ and a love for other people as, as well. Now, let's continue to unpack this, this teaching of, of Paul and the Holy Spirit here in verses uh, 14 through 23. Paul declares that there is nothing unclean of itself. And, and that might surprise you. Sometimes people can read it and say, wow, I mean, what's Paul declaring here? When Paul declares that there's nothing unclean of itself, he's talking about Christian liberties. That's the context that he's describing it. He's not talking about everything in life. There's plenty that's unclean in life. Uh, sin is unclean. So he's not saying everything is, uh, nothing is unclean of itself. Sin certainly is. The point that Paul is making here is that no Christian liberty, no Christian kind of doubtful thing is intrinsically unclean before God. Uh, in order to practice a particular Christian liberty doesn't make a person unclean before God, in God's eyes, in their relationship uh, with him. And so Paul begins this section by really kind of defending the position of the strong in all of this and making it clear that he numbered himself among those who are uh, strong in terms of Christian liberty. 
Now, I, I, all of this, I think, is important to understand <clears throat> that while Christian liberty, uh, liberties uh, essentially clean before God, uh, all of them are, it doesn't mean that every Christian liberty can be safely practiced by every single Christian. Uh, and it's important to understand that. For example, uh, concerning uh, drinking of alcohol. It's lawful for a Christian to do, never to be drunk, but free uh, to uh, drink uh, to that point. But if you become a, a Christian and you come out of uh, alcohol addiction uh, to become a Christian, or you come from a long line of alcoholics in your bloodline, in your family uh, lineage, it'd probably be a good idea for you to take a pass on that particular uh, liberty. Uh, playing video games per se, it's absolutely lawful for a Christian to do. But if you're the kind of Christian who once you get that game controller in your hand, you're not gonna be able to put it down for the next eight hours, uh, you're not going to eat, nobody's even gonna know that you uh, even uh, exist, then that's probably a liberty that you wanna steer clear of. Uh, watching television, it's completely lawful for a Christian uh, to do. Not everything on it, but certainly to watch television. Uh, but if you sit down as a Christian with that remote in your hand, and you sit down for hours and undisciplined hours of just binge-watching of television, so that now your time in prayer, now your time in the Word of God, now your time in Christian growth is being squeezed, it's being pinched, uh, in your life. You're finding that you don't have the time uh, to, to do that, or your Christian service is now uh, suffering, then that's probably a liberty you'll want to steer clear of, or you'll want to set very strict, strict boundaries upon. Or whatever other liberty other Christians can engage in, it possesses no danger to them in terms of becoming an addiction or an unhealthy obsession in their life, uh, but uh, for you, it does. And so that's the kind of thing, though, a liberty to us is something that we'd want to be very careful of. And thus, as we mentioned in studying the previous section last time, it's important for us to seek the Lord individually as Christians about even the liberties that are a part of our lives. And to, and to say, Lord, all of these things I know are lawful. I can do all of these things. But they, uh, is engaging in this a part of your plan for my life? In the light of who am I am, your calling upon my life, how you want to use me to glorify yourself. Just because it's a liberty doesn't mean it should be a part of my life. Now, the liberty is the starting point. And then now I seek God and I say, God, now in the light of all of these things that I've just mentioned, is this to be a part uh, of my life? And, and uh, go to the Lord and ask for him to even give us instruction and direction concerning the liberties of our life. It doesn't make you an oddball. It puts you in extraordinary, uh, extraordinarily good company. The Apostle Paul himself, in assessing his own practice of Christian liberties. He wrote to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. And Corinth and the early church was liberty central. All they cared about was 
am I free to do this and I'm going to do it to the nth degree? They never took it to the place of uh, what boundaries, Lord, might you want me to place this upon my life? And so Paul wrote to them uh, autobiographically concerning himself. He said, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. In other words, if a liberty represented a potential for addiction or bondage in his life, then the Apostle Paul, uh, out it went related to his life. Paul wrote elsewhere in his letter to the church at Corinth, he said, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but all thing, not all things edify. In other words, Paul took even the liberties that he knew he had as a Christian and as one who is in the category of the strong related to uh, Christian liberties, and he put them to the further test of asking, does this help me, the practice of this? Does this help me specifically spiritually? And then, and then he put it to the additional test of, does this edify me? Does this build me up uh, spiritually, and if it didn't for the Apostle Paul, he wasn't interested in practicing that liberty. And that's a high standard that Paul put himself to, but I, I don't think anybody will ever be, uh, I think it's a wise standard, and I don't think anyone will ever be uh, disappointed at applying it to our own lives, especially if one day we want to hear uh, from the Lord Jesus himself, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. And the reason that this is important is this, is because it is possible for a Christian to completely fritter away his or her life, uh, focusing completely and solely upon the practice of his and her liberties, and make that the dominant influence, the dominant focus of their Christian life, and, uh, and miss God's ultimate plan and purpose for his or her life. And to forget that the, 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 the stand before the Lord one day and to hear that well done, that that well done isn't something that is self-existent or independent. It is well done, thou good and faithful servant. And the only way that that, good, that well done occurs is by being a good and faithful servant. And a person can engage so thoroughly in liberties as a Christian that I never become a good and faithful servant. I never do what it is that God has called me to do and to be individually in, in, my, uh, in my life. He tells us further in the second half of verse 14, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it's unclean. Uh, in other words, although no Christian liberty is a sin, it's not a sin in God's eyes, if a person considers the practice of uh, that liberty, uh, to have alcohol touch their lips or whatever it might be, then for that person it is. And Paul is saying this for the education of us who are the more strong in terms of, of the Christian liberties and to understand that this is true concerning the weaker. 
these things that we look at and we can say, ah, they all just ought to grow out of it. I don't know why they're so uptight about uh, that issue and why they always have to uh, make a, a, a big deal out of it. It's a, it's a big deal for a lot of reasons in their life, and we don't need to know uh, all of those re- uh, reasons, but to know that to practice that or not practice that is a big deal to them. And if the, the weaker brother were to engage in that liberty, it would wound their conscience uh, deeply, and it would cause them to believe that, that their engagement in that liberty has now uh, adversely affected their relationship with God. It has made them unclean uh, before God. And for that reason, we never want to as a stronger brother or sister in this regard, never want to tempt a weaker brother to practice some liberty that for them they feel it would be a sin for them to practice it or to kind of embolden them uh, to jump out of the restrictions that they've placed upon uh, upon uh, uh, themselves. You take them out to a steakhouse if they're decided now that I need to be a vegetarian. And, and as some of them felt in the, in the current idolatrous uh, condition of Rome. And uh, take them out for a steak and talk them into eating uh, the, the steak. And he eats the steak and you go, we all go home as the strong brother and say, all right, I got him over that, that hump and he's on his way. And we don't know that he... He heads home and he spends the whole night, the whole night, flailing himself with a belt and and uh, before God, you know, so to speak, and absolutely condemned uh, before before God uh, in in having practiced it. And it's for this reason that personally, I uh, I am always glad to talk with somebody who wants to discuss uh, their views with me on liberties, why they hold a a particular uh, restriction related to a liberty, and why they wonder why I might not, or vice versa. I'm I'm happy for those those kind of discussions. And when somebody comes to me and I get a sense that they hold so strongly to this view related to a liberty uh, that for them to practice it, it, it would be sin. I never try to talk a person out of the the convictions of their conscience in this regard. I'll talk with them. If God wants to use that discussion to uh, move them to the left or the right, I'm glad for that to happen. But I never say, come on, I mean, grow up, get get off of it. What are you, come on, you're wasting your... I never go and try and, and bring them for me to use any kind of force or restraint or influence to, to bring them to, to my, uh, my view. I think that that's something that only God can safely do because uh, they do what they do as unto the Lord. And in this regard, only the Lord's voice is authoritative to them. And, uh, and, and, and they will have to hear his voice and the privacy of their own relationship with him uh, to, to then walk out into greater freedom. Paul tells us further in verse 15 that to elevate the practice of a liberty, 
uh, above the spiritual welfare of another Christian. In other words, for me to practice a liberty in front of another person that I know is going to stumble them, another Christian, I know it's going to uh, grieve them, then it is an indication that I, as the stronger brother, am not walking in love. That I've, I have now come, I've got a, 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 a really bad balance in my understanding of, of liberties and what really is uh, important. And, and if I, as a stronger brother, say, I'm going to just go ahead and do whatever it is that I want to do, and all those other Christians just need to shape up, and they can just lump it, or whatever Beaver would say, or Wally, uh, and they just have to deal with it. And that's an indication now that I have given liberty of preeminence in my life above love, and I've got something massive uh, on, uh, flipped upside down in, in my own, in my own uh, uh, life. And that then becomes a very, very poor reflection on the stronger brother. And it really calls into question, though I may be strong in my liberties, it may call into question whether I am spiritually minded or carnally minded in, in how to uh, assess the situations that I I find myself in and in a concern for the health uh, of other Christians in the body of Christ. He says further at the end of verse 15, he said, do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Now here Paul again talking to the stronger and he is getting stronger in talking with us and, uh, and, and getting very, very pointed here. I think that what Paul is doing here is he is engaging in what I would call sanctified shaming. In other words, he says, okay, uh, you're so strong in your liberties and, uh, and you just exercise them without any discernment or love before uh, the weaker brethren within the church. You stumble them and, and create these problems with them. Now, load the word food. Uh, and, or whatever liberty you want to talk about, on one side of the balance scales, and then lo- load the words, for whom Christ died, on the other side of the scale, to get a little perspective about what is really important in the body of Christ, and, and what is comparatively uh, less I- important. In other words, if Jesus was willing to die on the cross of Calvary, uh, to save these weaker brethren the same way that he saved us, then Paul says, shouldn't you be willing to deny yourself some expression of liberty in some specific environments uh, in, in order not to stumble them? And so he's calling upon uh, them, calling upon the stronger to get a grip in this regard. Understand what's really, really important here and, uh, and again, an unwillingness to do so would reflect very, very horribly uh, upon us. Paul communicated his heart on, on the issue elsewhere, again to 1 Corinthians, where he addressed much the same issue at length in, in that letter. 1 Corinthians 8, chapter 11, he said, And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when, you, uh, but when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, Paul said, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never 
eat meat again, lest I make my brother stumble. And that is the mature, godly view of the, of the uh, giving uh, proper uh, weight to liberties in the light, uh, in comparison to the unity of the body of Christ and the faith of any other Christian, a younger brother. In verse 16, he says, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. And he naturally follows uh, the previous verse in this. In other words, yes, you have a right to engage in your liberty. You have a right to engage in your good. It is good. Uh, But your good is going to be viewed by others. It's going to be spoken of by others as evil if you continually make that the most important thing in your life and you elevate it above the spiritual welfare of others. In verse 17, uh, essentially, in a famous verse in in the book of Romans, I think essentially he, he reminds us as Christians, all of us, Uh, weak or strong in this regard, that we are to major in the majors and uh, and minor in the minors. We are not to minor in the majors and major in the minors. Notice verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. In other words, it's not liberties. That's not what the kingdom of God is supremely about. But here's what it's really about. But righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, the focus of the kingdom of God isn't to be fussing and fighting over eating and drinking or any other Christian liberties, uh, but rather our focus is to be upon righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Not only for the sake of the unity of Christians within a local church, but for the sake of a world that watches our lives and comes into our churches uh, in order for Christ to be properly represented uh, before them when, when they come in uh, to, to our churches. I mean, you think about what an absolute tragedy it would be if to have an unsaved person walk into a church and here they are. They've reached the end of their rope in life. I mean, they've been addicted to five different things in, in life. And their, their life is a, just a trail of destroyed relationships. They hate the person that they've become in their adult life or even sooner. And they figure, I'm going to go find out about God. Maybe he can change me. I've tried and I have uh, no hope in doing so. Are they thinking about what's the meaning and the purpose of life? Is there a God? How can I come to know God? Uh, what kind of a God will I run into at the end of my uh, uh, journey? And will he forgive me of, of my sins? All the kind of questions that go on in a, in a person's mind before they ever walk into a church. All the motivations that they possess before they walk into a church. And then imagine coming into a church, instead of hearing about God, about the forgiveness of sins, about the fact that we've been created for a relationship with God, and we can enter into that relationship by putting our faith in Christ. Instead, they walk into a church and they find it completely consumed by in, in arguing over the practice of some Christian liberty 
or whether a Christian can have a glass of wine or whether they can watch television or the length of a person's hair. Uh, Can a man have longer hair? Can it be a woman have shorter hair? Or how many inches above or below the knee a a woman's uh, skirt should be? And no wonder if the world comes into a church and the threat was very real related to the church in Rome, and it's as, as real to any church in existence in a Christian church in, in the world today, including this one. And imagine, I mean, if they came in and that was their experience, I mean, they would think we were all uh, crazy. I mean, they, they'd be, have every justification to stand up uh, in, in our midst and to ask if we've lost all consciousness of how bad things are out there, how messed up people are, how much bondage they're in, how much addiction is going on out there, how much hopelessness is out there. That somehow that we, uh, we could think that when a person comes into a church that somehow uh, that, all of that can be put to the back burner in the light of arguing over some kind of a, of a liberty. It was, would always be the characteristic of a church that has completely lost sight of the lost. It has lost sight of what it means to, to be unsaved and to need God and the desperateness of that condition and what a church needs to be, not just for us, but what it needs to be for them when they come in, looking for God uh, in, in the midst of, of that uh, uh, church. And imagine the, it, it, the, the, if they came in and it was all just an endless argument over liberties and our opinions and our views of, of all of this, and that was all that they, they heard about uh, rather than what Paul describes here, coming in and hearing the gospel. That God has provided, has given every single human being in the world, he's extended an invitation to be saved and to be forgiven. For the church to be about the kingdom of God, for people to come in to a place like this and to realize that there is more than just the kingdom of man. All of the hopelessness of it, all of the the fighting of it, the lack of peace that is found in it, but there's another kingdom that exists. And it's the kingdom of God. And you can become a citizen of that kingdom by trusting in Christ. Paul talks about righteousness as a priority. To learn of the fact that when we become a Christian, that God will take the very righteousness of Christ and put it to our account. And that God will give us the power to live the life of Christian life that's described in the scriptures. We have positional righteousness with God. We have practical uh, righteousness before God. And then to talk about uh, peace, that it's through a faith in Jesus that we can have peace with God. To walk into a place like this and to realize the war with God, the conflict with God, the battle with God, the opposition to God can all be over in an instant. And instead of me making him my enemy, he'll become my friend, my savior. He'll become my father in just a moment in time. These are the things that the lost need to hear in a church. And then to experience the peace, as Paul describes it, that is found 
in possessing that righteousness or the joy that's found in possessing that righteousness and then possessing that peace. And it is a joy that isn't found anywhere in the world. I don't care if they've got a $150 million budget on that movie and they put things together that make your eyes pop out of, uh, of their eye sockets for two hours. The joy that Paul describes here and is found in a relationship with God is only found here. And that's what God wants people to run into when they come into a a local uh, church and uh, the experience that they're there to have and, and what he wants, God wants even us as his people to enjoy in a local church. This is what we're to focus on and what the Holy Spirit will bear witness to in, in people's hearts. Not disputes over what's the best day of the week to worship the Lord, whether Saturday or Sunday, or whether a Christian can eat certain foods or not, or whether a Christian can drink coffee or, or not. And you just stop and think. You say, this guy's on a rant. Maybe, but maybe it's as important as I'm making it out to be. You think about the zillions and zillions of people who want nothing to do with Christianity. They wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. Not because of Christ. Not because of His teaching. Not because of the demands of Scripture but because by personality and life experience, they have no tolerance for this kind of nonsense. They have no tolerance at all for the pettiness of being involved with any group of people that are gonna make this the focus of their life and the things that they're going to argue about for the rest of their lives. Or how many have been turned off from Christ or turned away from Christianity, because when they did come into church in a search for God, this is what they were exposed to. And naturally, they would automatically assume that they had had a a clear experience with what Christianity is. And, and they assume that this is what it means to become a Christian, that it means squabbling for the rest of your life over liberties and inconsequentials, and no thank you, I've got enough aggravations in my life already without taking one of my two days off and going to church and arguing with religious people over this. We can all understand why, the damage that can be done when these things get flipped in in an improper uh, order. And who could blame anyone from turning away uh, from church or Christianity when it's represented that way? And you stop and think, those of you who are older and you've walked with the Lord for a while, think about uh, the the, the 60s and the 70s, uh, 50, 60 years ago, when in our country, I mean, one of the the great focus of, of the church was not righteousness, peace, and joy in, in the way that it should have been exclusively. But there, were the, there was the, the arguing and, and the disputes over whether a person could come to church in suits and ties or in blue jeans and a t-shirt or, uh, you know, the people's hair length or whether women could wear pants or even whether they could wear uh, makeup. And these kind of things were the dominant focus of Christianity 
within the Western world and within the United States for decades. This is how Christianity was represented. And these things became the litmus test for spirituality, and and it became the face of Christianity to the whole nation and to the whole world. And it's sobering to realize that. And I think it makes me determined, and I trust all of us determined, that we will not get these things flipped on their head in, in, our Christian, in our Christian lives and not expend any more time that we have left in our pilgrimage to arguing and fighting over these kind of things when we have such greater themes and realities to put before people and to rejoice in and to celebrate. Ray Stedman, a very uh, well-known uh, pastor of Peninsula Bible Church in Palo Alto, California, is now uh, in heaven, but he told a story uh, that illustrates all of this very well. He spoke about the fact that he heard about a church that had a Christmas program. And uh, part of the church was determined to have a Christmas tree in the Christmas program. Thought there was nothing wrong with it. Uh, another half of, uh, of the church or another portion of it decided that that was wrong. It was a, a part of Saturnalia, the worship of, uh, you know, pay, the pagan origin of so much of Christmas. They wanted nothing to do with the Christmas tree. And, uh, and, and they got so angry th- with each other that they actually got into a fist fight uh, over it. And one group grabbed the, uh, dragged the tree out and the other uh, group tra- dragged the tree back in. And uh, they ended up suing each other in a court of law. And of course, this kind of thing makes the headlines of any, any local newspaper. And so it, it, for the whole community uh, then to read about all of the events and then the, the subsequent lawsuit and all, and what else could non-Christians who would read the article conclude? except that what Christians are all about is whether you can have a Christmas tree or not have a Christmas tree. And it's important to understand that there is still a world watching uh, us as Christians, and it's important that they see the right things uh, being addressed within our lives, the proper priorities, rather than these lesser things. And so the importance of this passage really in protecting not just the unity of the local church, because the unity of the local church, I mean, that pales in comparison to what's at stake related to the lost world. That's eternity still in, uh, uh, hanging in the balance for, for them. Paul declares in verse 18 further that this is acceptable to God and approved by man. In other words, everything he said there in verse 17, this is right in the eyes of God, and this is what people will recognize with their own eyeballs, in their own heart and mind, is a right priority and practice for Christians. In verse 19, he tells us that we're to pursue what makes for peace and edification. And usually there's a a whole world of spiritual truth and practice uh, that that Christians, whether we have a strong conscience or weak conscience in these regards, these things that we differ on, as Christians we possess an entire world of what we do agree on, not only in terms of doctrine, but but in in terms uh, of practice. And to make those things that we agree upon the focus of, of the local church and not some, some liberty so that 
the church is a peaceful place where people can come and be edified, and it's not a weekly fight over some uh, relatively small issue. He says in verse 20, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. And here's the reminder that every single Christian is a work of God. Whether they get on our nerves or they don't get on our nerves, every one of us, I'm a work of God. You just got to deal with that. But I got to deal with that uh, to you as well. Uh, Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, and he said, we are God's workmanship. And the word workmanship means, it is poema. And we get our English word poem from. Every single Christian is God's poem. They're his workmanship. What is a poem? A poem is an expression of the heart of the person who writes the poem. Every single one of us is uh, some uh, with varying degrees in terms of what each, each of us carries as a message into the world around us. But we are a poem of God's to this world, an expression of, of who He is. And the reason it's important concerning liberties is for us to realize that, that God has invested massively in every single Christian. And what He has begun in every Christian, He is completely invested in, and He will bring that to uh, completion, whether they are weak related to Christian liberties or strong related to Christian liberties. And we don't want to play any part in, in marring that work through the exercise of our Christian liberties that could damage them and in any way. He says further in verse 21, it's good not to partake in any liberty that might cause another brother to stumble. And again, Paul is highly repetitive in this section. And you look at it, he keeps saying the things over and over again. Does it mean that he kind of finishes the sentence, goes off, gets a cup of coffee, forgets where his train of thought was, and he starts again where he was? No, he understands how uh, great the damage that, that this causes uh, in a local church and to the reputation of God. So he keeps coming back to the subject over and over again. Verse 22, he said that we are to exercise our liberties with discernment. And so if we have, there are some liberties that, uh, that, uh, that we know we are free to express and, and before God, and, uh, and so we are free to uh, express those liberties privately with God, or <clears throat> we are to express as the strong uh, those liberties with those that we know they won't be stumbled by them. So if Paul says, if you have faith, in other words, the faith that the practice of your liberty is okay uh, with God. You don't have to forsake your liberty altogether, uh, but we do need to be discerning about where we express it. And so we can express it alone before God. He certainly won't be stumbled by it. We can express our liberties among those that have a a comparable view in terms of liberty. They won't be stumbled at all. And, uh, and And to express it fully in those environments and only restrict ourselves as it relates to <clears throat> those, uh, <clears throat> those who, who would be uh, stumbled by it. Excuse me. So it's allergy season, isn't it? One moment. I do think it's important 
that, there, that, that to realize that there may be uh, liberties that, that, you, that you express that probably should only be expressed between you and God. It would stumble all of us. For instance, if you own <clears throat> Captain and Tennille's Greatest Hits album, uh, you should just play that alone at home and not let anyone know that. And if your favorite cut on that is Muskrat Love, I don't want to know uh, that at all. I, I will have trouble um, dealing with you uh, in your taste in music and, and as a human being. Paul closes here in verse 23, <clears throat> and again returning to his point in verse 14. And that is that only God can safely change a person's convictions uh, re- related to uh, these Christian liberties. And if a person is convinced to, per- to partake in a particular sin, uh, a particular liberty is a sin, and they don't have the faith that it's okay uh, to, to do so, then to them it's a sin. Again, not a sin in the eyes of God, but in their mind and their conscience, it is a sin. And throughout this, this whole section of, uh, of Romans here, Paul continually goes to the strong and asks us to stand down in the area of, of liberties uh, before the weak. He, he, he gives instruction to the weak, but it's it, not that much. He calls on us to stand down. And, and the reason that he does that is for the simple reason that the weak cannot change their convictions without genuinely feeling that they're sinning if they do. But the strong can do so without damaging their conscience at all. So for the strong to, to change their understanding of a liberty and their practice of it in, in front of, of uh, the weak, uh, it might be an inconvenience to them, it might be an annoyance to them uh, to have to yield on this issue uh, before this person, but it poses no threat to their conscience or, or to their faith. And so Paul calls on the strong, and he includes himself among this, uh, to out of a motivation of love to yield to the weak in this regard. Again, Paul writing in this same vein of these things to the church at, at Corinth in his first epistle, famously writes of love in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, and he declares, and now abide faith. The strong have faith. We have faith. We have an understanding of our liberties. But now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. And this is what Paul is wanting to say in this particular section. Our Christian liberties, they are important, but they're to be guided by something uh, even more important than our rights, and that is uh, by a love for our fellow brethren and a love for uh, uh, the local church that we uh, belong to. Let's stand together now, and we'll close in prayer. If you stand here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, here's what God wants you to know from all of this. Here's His message to you from none other than Jesus Himself. And that is, this is what Christianity is about. This is what the church is about. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
and you can receive the forgiveness of sins, you can receive a fresh start in your life, you can begin the relationship with God that you've been created for and without which nothing will make sense or satisfy in life, and you can receive all of that and more, the confidence of heaven, by putting your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to answer your questions and pray with you to do exactly that today. That is the major of Christianity. And, and if you need prayer for any need in your life this morning, these men and women would love to pray with you and for you as well. Sunday night, we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, because it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. We're currently studying the book of Ezekiel, six o'clock this evening. Each of you are invited. Let me close this up in prayer. Father, only you know from your vantage point the awful, 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 indescribable damage and destruction that has been done to local churches, to relationships, to your reputation uh, out of a failure to understand these things that we've looked at here today. And Lord, I know that these things can seem so inconsequential to so many, but they are not, and we thank you that you included this instruction in your word because we desperately, desperately need it. Thank you, Lord, for showing us how to handle ourselves in a way that puts others first and puts uh, greater things in our life into the greater thing category in our life, the unity of the body of Christ, the strength and health of individual Christians, and then also, Lord, your reputation before a watching world. Thank you for this time in your word this morning, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.